0: Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. All right, church, welcome. So great to be with you on yet another Sunday. And here I am in the church sanctuary with a few of my friends getting ready to get into the word Uh, Today, If you take out your Bibles, we're in Mark chapter 11, and we'll actually shift into chapter 12 uh, this morning uh, as well. So Mark chapter 11, if you turn there uh, in your Bibles. And I did want to acknowledge the mug on the stage here. Some of you are happy that I have a Christmas mug out already on November 10th. Others of you are sad about that. And for you, I would just say, it's just a red house with a tree and some snow. Who said it's a Christmas mug, but I'm looking forward to Christmas. Uh, hey, I wanted to mention to you that in our Tuesday night teaching this week, Pastor Josh Shively is gonna be sharing the words, so you can grab that on Tuesday starting at noon. And then I also wanted to let you know that we finished together last week the book of Genesis. So all 50 chapters. So if you'd like to go back and listen to the completion of that Genesis study or just get started with it afresh, we've just finished together the book of Genesis and we'll be moving into the book of Exodus next week after Pastor Josh uh, teaches. Uh, We're recording this on Thursday, and obviously we had our presidential election this last week, so we're sitting here in the sanctuary uncertain about who is declared uh, president. We're, of course, watching the news and all of that and are following all of the headlines, so who knows where things will be by the time this uh, airs. It seems that things are set for some kind of court battle and all of that, so we're praying for our nation, but we know no matter what, the Lord is on the throne. And for that, I actually have a message. I didn't plan on this being the theme or the title or the subject of this week's teaching, but in God's providence, it's just where we are in the gospel of Mark. And the title of my message is On Whom Should I Build My Life? On Whom Should I Build My Life? And every believer, of course, understands that we're not going to build our lives on any presidential candidate, but we want to build our lives on Jesus Christ. And I think this text helps us to a greater degree understand Why? And the first thing that we're going to see in this passage today is this. Number one, Jesus came with heaven's authority. Jesus came with heaven's authority. Let's start reading the episode together, starting in verse 27. It says, and they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Now, this is the third day in the road that uh, Jesus has gone to the temple there in Jerusalem, starting with Palm Sunday. And here, a group of religious leaders come to him. Uh, Chief priests, scribes, and elders, it says in verse 27, were there. Uh, These were likely members of a group called the Sanhedrin. Uh, This was a group of 71 men uh, who had been granted religious control and authority by the Roman government. And by the time of Jesus, they basically operated as a go-between between Israel's population and the Roman authorities. And there on the Temple Mount, they were most certainly in charge. They were the authorities in that space. So they wanted to know why Jesus thought he could do everything he'd done. Remember last week, he went into the temple and he cleared it out. The 34 acres there in the court of the Gentiles, he brought to a screeching halt. And they wanted to know what gave Jesus the right to do these things. And so they asked two questions. We already read them there. In verse 28, the first question is, by what authority are you doing these things? And the second question is, who gave you this authority? So by what authority and who gave you this authority? These men had been struck, in other words, by the power, the authority, the audaciousness, the boldness of Jesus. You know, the court of the Gentiles, like I've been saying, was a massive area, 35 acres uh, almost in size. And Jesus brought everything there to a grinding halt. That's power, that's strength, that's authority. But not only that, Jesus' whole ministry was authoritative. You know, this episode and the ones that follow it are not the only time the religious leaders tangle with Jesus in the book of Mark. We might actually have forgotten that in the first few chapters of Mark's gospel, Jesus is presented as being confronted time and time again by the religious establishment, not in Jerusalem, but in the region of the Galilee. And during those chapters, they witnessed the power, the authority of Jesus. In fact, in Mark chapter one, you might remember the first time that Jesus went into the synagogue in Capernaum to teach the response of the people after Jesus taught was, what is this new teaching? With authority is what they said in Mark 1, verse 27. Then in Mark chapter two, when a paralyzed man was lowered through the roof and as Jesus taught the crowds that day, Jesus forgave this paralyzed man of his sins and the religious leaders asked the question, who gives this man the authority to forgive sins? And Jesus said that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, paralyzed man, rise, take up your bed, and go home. And when the religious leaders challenged Jesus about eating with tax collectors and sinners, he authoritatively told them that he was a physician who came to help those who were spiritually sick. And when the religious leaders were bothered by the disciples' lack of fasting, Jesus authoritatively told them that God was looking for fresh wineskins like the disciples and not old wineskins like these religious leaders. And one day when they cornered him about breaking the Sabbath regulations that they'd constructed, Jesus called himself the Lord, of the Sabbath. This is authority, authority exuding from Christ. And one day when they came at him about the way that his disciples neglected the hand washing ceremony that they would prescribed, Jesus authoritatively tossed aside their traditions in favor of the word of God. And I think these men, with all of that in their minds, all of that in their history, seeing how Jesus acted that day on the Temple Mount, they wanna know, where do you think you have such authority? Where's this power and authority coming from? Now, when they ask this question, they, as the Sanhedrin, are placing themselves in authority over Jesus. They think they are the ones who need to weigh in on who Jesus is. And listen to me now. This is often the way of humanity. Earthly powers think that they are the judge and jury over Christ. People think their opinion of Jesus is the authoritative opinion. But Jesus is the authority over us. In places like Colossians chapter one, we learn that Jesus' rightful place is always in the first position, supreme, preeminent over everything. And so Jesus needs to do something to flip things back into their proper order. So let's read of his response in verse 29. It says, Jesus said to them, I will, t- I will ask you one question, answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Now, when Jesus asked this question, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? He was rightfully placing himself above the Sanhedrin, you know, above these religious leaders. They thought that they had the right to come in and interrogate Jesus, but he's superior in every way, and so now he questions them. Now, Jesus wasn't trying to dodge their question. You know, he wasn't changing the subject, You know, like, oh, John the Baptist. No, he's not doing that. He's not giving a disjointed reply. This question had everything to do with their question. You see, they wanted to know where Jesus got his authority. Same place John got his authority. And how had they treated John? What did they think of John? Was John's authority from heaven or from man? Was John fashioned and sent by God or was he made by man's hype and enthusiasm? Were people just excited about him? And if John was from God, why hadn't the religious leaders believed John's message? You know, John continually pointed to Jesus. The spirit and the father had himself shown up at John's baptism of Jesus. If John was from God, then certainly Jesus also had the authority of heaven like John did. So this is how they replied. Let's read it in verse 31. It says, and they discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now we see precisely what Jesus was up to. These men were not honest. They were not intellectually honest before Jesus. Uh, They wondered where Jesus got his authority, but they weren't even willing to honestly consider John. So why would they honestly consider Jesus? You see, Jesus here, with his question, put them on on the horns of a dilemma. They didn't want to confess that John had come from God because John had been critical of their leadership. He liked to call them broods of vipers. And they didn't want to say that John had come from man because the people all liked John. They thought John had come from God. And these leaders feared the people. Now, in their answer, we see two major reasons that people are hindered from Christ. Two major reasons that people are hindered from Christ. First, there's the fear of man. What will others think of me if I submit to Jesus? How will they see me if I submit to his rule in my life? This is certainly an issue in our modern time. You know, personally, I think that belief and trust and walk a walk with Jesus is the sanest, wisest, and most intellectually responsible thing a person can do. But often, that's not the way society presents it. If you're a follower of Jesus, there might be times that you are ridiculed for your faith rather than honored for your faith. And personally, I think that ever increasingly, in the West, believers are going to experience economic persecution for their views. You know, if you're ever overlooked for a promotion because of your faith, or you're not hired in the first place because your Instagram shows that you're one of those church-going people, uh, then you're experiencing a bit of that economic persecution. And if that ever happens to you, you need to know that you're not the first person, the first group of believers to ever go through that kind of experience. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34, speaking of the wave of persecution those believers were going through, the author said, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. There was a season where their property was actually being plundered because they were Christians and they did it with joy. Now it's actually in that context, Hebrews 10, uh, verse 34, that Hebrews also tells us not to neglect the meeting together of the saints in Hebrews 10, 25. In other words, because endurance for Jesus is hard and because persecution is real and because the church can go through waves of disfavor in their societies, it is good to fight for the gathering. You know, in a church building, In a house, watching church gatherings with other believers that you know and love, in the catacombs, on Zoom, under a tent, meeting with believers is a way to endure increasing hostility towards the faith. I think any teenager that's watching today knows exactly what I'm talking about. Many of you have endured the subtle or not so subtle insinuation that Christians are bigoted, prejudiced, intellectually dull people. And this fear of others, what will they think of me, often keeps people from considering Jesus. These religious leaders had that fear of man. But a second reason these men show us that people are hindered from Christ is this, it's the unwillingness to lose power, unwillingness to lose power. The religious leaders, they had authority. John had rebuked them, so had Jesus, but they weren't willing to cede any of their authority to Christ. Instead, they clung to the small semblance of power they thought they had. Now today, the thought of letting Jesus become the authority and Lord of your life, it might scare you, but I assure you, it should not. It's living without Jesus's good and gracious and merciful and powerful leadership that should scare you. It's self-leadership and self-expression that should scare you. It's personal empowerment that should scare you. Instead, you should hand the reins of your life over to Jesus. So don't fear others and don't fear the loss of power. Others cannot affect your soul, and personal power cannot get you joy and peace. Instead, be honest, declare the lordship and authority of Christ, and submit to him. So that's our first section, thinking about the authority of Jesus. Well, let's look at a second thing today about Jesus. Number two, Jesus is the pinnacle of revelation. Jesus is the pinnacle of revelation, not the book of revelation, though he is that, uh, but he's the pinnacle of God's revelation over the years. Let me show you what I mean from this next section in chapter 12, starting in verse one. It says, and Jesus began to speak to them in parables. He started his parable by saying, a man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. All right, we'll stop right there in this new parable that Jesus told. Here, Jesus kept the conversation going with the members of the Sanhedrin there on the Temple Mount. Uh, He started now teaching them in parables, and Mark only gives us one of those parables, the one right here in verse one through 12. Uh, Mark tells us this story was centered around, verse one, a man who built a vineyard, planted a vineyard, Now, this man must have expected uh, a lot of grapes and a lot of wine to come from this vineyard because he put a fence around the property. He dug out a pit for a wine press and even built a tower in the midst of this vineyard. This vineyard was meant to be successful. It was meant to succeed. It was just basically meant to grow a lot of grapes. It was supposed to be really fruitful. Now, we read that and it might not strike us as all that significant, but let me tell you this these religious leaders would have recognized this vineyard right away because the prophet Isaiah had written about such a place. In Isaiah chapter five, God spoke about a vineyard just like this one. Then in Isaiah five, it says that God had been the one to plant the vineyard. And the vineyard in Isaiah five was Israel itself. He was looking for them to produce fruit and he had given them ideal conditions to do so spiritual fruit unto God but it says in Isaiah 5 verse 2 that instead of yielding grapes they yielded wild grapes the kinds of grapes that were unusable to the master unusable to God and in the prophecy of Isaiah God then came in and destroyed the vineyard but I want you to hang on to that thought for a second because that's where Jesus's parable is actually gonna turn in a different direction. So just remember that for a moment. In Isaiah, God destroyed the vineyard, but he's gonna do something different in this parable. But before moving on in this parable into verse two, I think we can learn a little bit about God just from verse one. He's presented in Isaiah and here in this parable as the one who plants a choice vineyard. It's a place of opportunity. Under the conditions that God established, fruit can grow. Now this parable, like I said, it most strongly will tell us the story of Israel's past, especially of religious factions that rejected God and rejected the prophets over the years. Jesus had just talked about this fruitlessness in the temple when he said, it's written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers, they were fruitless, like the fig tree was fruitless, and so they were cursed by Jesus in a sense. So this is about Israel, this parable. But in a sense, this parable is also the story of human history. You see, God started creation by building a garden. We were meant to flourish in that garden, but because we ignored his word, his message, his messengers, and continue to ignore his word in many respects. Destruction came and destruction comes. As his church, we need to allow Jesus to reverse this in our lives. Understanding that the spirit now lives inside of us so we can learn his word, adhere to the message, and live by his statutes and watch him produce fruit from our lives. After all, God the one who built this vineyard that had everything it needed for success has also given us everything needed for fruit bearing. Listen to this from 2 Peter chapter 1, verse three. God is described like this. His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. God, he is good, and he's built the vineyard out for his people, he's given us everything we need for life and godliness. Conditions for fruit are good with God's people. Okay, but let's go on in the parable and see what happens next. It says in verse two, when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. All right, the servants here in this parable, they're all representative of God's servants, God's prophets, God's messengers. In fact, in the Old Testament, the title servant is often given to God's key people, God's key messengers. Men like Moses and David and Aaron were called servants of the Lord Uh, and all of them in a sense were rejected for a time uh, and then eventually received. You know, Moses, when he was 40 years old, was rejected and then received by Israel when he was 80 years old. Aaron was despised by other people who wanted his position and then received by the nation once God corrected all of them publicly. David was rejected by his father as the eighth and forgotten son until Samuel the prophet anointed him and declared him to be the future king in Israel. And all of those men were emblematic of all the prophets. So many of the prophets were recognized later as God's messengers and servants. The religious elite in Israel often rejected or rebuffed God's true messengers and servants. Listen to what God said through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 25. He said, you've neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear Although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants, the prophets. Now he'd sent servant after servant and they'd rejected them. And the new Jeremiah, Jesus, he backed up that same sentiment. He said in Matthew 23, so the righteous blood shed on the earth will be charged to you from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah. You know, it was all on them because they had rejected messenger after messenger, servant after servant that was sent to the vineyard. They killed, they beat, they rejected. But it wasn't only Israel who rejected God's messengers. All of mankind has a tendency to reject God's revelation. Listen to this from Romans chapter 1. so they are without excuse. This is saying to us that God has revealed himself through creation. God wrote the Bible, but he also wrote the cosmos. And we should be able to look at creation and make specific conclusions. You know, in the precision of the universe, we should conclude that there is a designer of the universe. In the expanding nature of the universe, we should conclude that there is a first cause who was uncaused. In the habitability of our planet, we should conclude that there's a God who loves us. He made this special place for us to dwell. And in our inner turmoil and nearly universal search for God, everybody's looking for God, everybody's looking for a deity, we should conclude that God Can be found. We should look for ways that God has broken in to this chaos to declare Himself to us. He has revealed Himself. But just as Israel rejected her messengers, the prophets, so often humanity rejects the messenger of creation. You know, Israel is actually part of that revelation, by the way. I don't know if you've ever thought about Israel and their existence as an apologetic or a proof or an evidence or a clue about God's existence. But the fact of Israel's existence after so many years of persecution stands out as a testament of God's election to the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, other kingdoms and other people groups have been totally lost to history. But Israel, over the centuries has been preserved and even in our last century miraculously re-established. Even today, when so much attention is given to this little nation, it stands out as worldwide notice that God exists. He is breaking through creation or general revelation, telling us about himself. And that's what he does, servant after servant, communicating with humanity. There's another couple of things we should learn about God, though, from this part of the parable, and it's simply this. We have to learn that God is patient. You know, he sent Israel servant after servant. He sends humanity servant after servant. He communicates himself over and over again. You know, God describes himself as long-suffering. He's very patient. And this part of God's long-suffering nature, his waiting for people to hear his voice is beautiful. But we also see in this part of the parable the hard-heartedness of human beings. You know, the keepers of this vineyard are, are portrayed as trying to evade the master, throw off the master, silence every servant that was sent their way. And without Christ, this is the way of man. The Bible says, In Romans 3, verse 9, that we are all under sin without Jesus. It's over us, we're swimming in it, it dominates our lives. And it becomes natural for us to reject God by trying to push God out of our consciousness. But maybe for you, right now, during this season, you know that God is trying to break through. Maybe the messenger for you has been the chaos and calamity that has befallen you this very year in your own life personally. And God is trying to get his voice in. He wants to have you lift up your eyes, look at creation, look at the word, look at Jesus, look at the resurrection, and realize that he has sent servant after servant to tell you that he loves you, that he cares for you, that he sent his only begotten son so that you might have life. He is long suffering, and he will do what he must to break through the hard-heartedness of man. Submit yourself to him today. All right, let's go on though to see how the parable concludes. It says in verse 6: He still he had still another. Here's the father, he has one more servant. The, the builder of the vineyard has one more servant. He says, He had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. All right, in this part of the parable, Jesus obviously is speaking about himself. You know, he's the beloved son of, that the father sent. He again shows us here that he knows exactly what he's about to suffer in Jerusalem. Jesus knows exactly what he's going to endure when he gets to Jerusalem on the cross. He knew that he was going to die. But even as Jesus approached his death, this is so fascinating, he knew about the love of the father. That's why he referred to his character in the story as the beloved son. Not just the son, but the beloved son. Because they are one. You know, father and son and spirit, three in one. It is not in any way divine child abuse that the father and son colluded for the son to die for the sin of the world. Jesus, in this moment, is conscious of the love of his father, even though he's about to run into chaos and pain. That's why he describes himself as the beloved son in this parable. And just as the son was the final messenger in the parable, so is Jesus the final message and messenger today. God has revealed himself in creation. God has revealed himself in Israel's story. God has revealed himself in fulfilled prophecy. But now God has revealed himself in his only begotten son. It says in Hebrews chapter one that long ago, in many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the express image or imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is Jesus. He is the ultimate in God's revelation, the last messenger has come, and still we preach him today. So that's why I said in this second section, Jesus is the pinnacle of revelation. Okay, but let's look at one last little thing together. Number three, Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone. This comes from verse 10 through 12. The parable concluded like this, verse nine. What will the owner of the vineyard do, Jesus asked, He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And verse 12, the religious leaders were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. All right, this is where the whole parable takes a turn. Remember I told you about Isaiah 5, how God destroyed the vineyard in that parable? Well, here in this parable, it's not the vineyard that's destroyed, but the tenants of the vineyard who are destroyed. They were held responsible for the lack of fruit for the master. Now, the religious leaders, it says in verse 12, we already read it, they realized or perceived that Jesus told the parable against them. And they were not super stoked to have this parable told about them. They wanted to arrest Jesus, but they feared the people, so they had to wait for a private time in the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest him. But what the parable showed is that God would eventually hold them accountable for what they had done. God would judge them. And you know, as much as we've learned in this parable that God is patient, that God is long-suffering, and that God is good and creates a good environment for us to bear fruit unto him, this parable does also show us that God is just and that he is one who will execute justice and judgment. This is another thing that we learn about God in this little story. You know, we should not misinterpret, in other words, the long-suffering nature of God as his permission to live however we want. Eventually, justice must be served. Judgment must arrive. God will deal with all sin. Because of his holiness, he must. He cannot overlook it. But we shouldn't be too alarmed by that either because though he must judge, it was the last messenger, the sent and beloved son in the story that makes the way for mercy and grace. You know, in the story, it's the last son he's sent, they kill him, but the death of Jesus is the very thing that unleashes the possibility of God's grace and mercy in the first place. So God will judge, but first he released his judgment into his son. Don't reject him, he's your gift. Believing in him can gain you the righteousness of God. Now as Jesus closed out his parable, uh, you noticed in verse 10 and 11 that he quoted from a psalm. This actually comes from Psalm 118. It's the same psalm, by the way, that in Mark chapter 11 when he rode into Jerusalem and people said, Hosanna. It's the same psalm that this section comes from. And Jesus asked them if they'd ever read that psalm. He said to these religious leaders, guys who had probably memorized most of the Old Testament, if not all of it, he said, have you not read this scripture? <laughs> they had totally read this scripture, but they'd never understood this scripture. In the psalm, there's basically a little lyric about a stone that arrived at a construction site. The builders looked at the stone And they didn't want it. They sent it away. They they thought it has no purpose. We don't need this stone. Then the time came for them to set the cornerstone. I don't know a lot about building, but I know that that's an important piece. Uh, The whole wall, the whole structure will be straight if you have the right cornerstone. It's foundational in a sense. And they looked around this construction site for the cornerstone and they couldn't find it. And they realized that they'd accidentally rejected it it was back in the quarry. And so they went there and they got the cornerstone. The rejected stone became the cornerstone. Now Jesus quotes this little lyric to help them understand what was happening in that moment. The son had come. They didn't know that he was the all-important son of God, the Christ Messiah, so they rejected him. But he was actually the most important part of the new structure that he was building. He is the chief cornerstone. Now the Bible teaches that one day, everybody will recognize that Jesus is who Jesus is. They'll recognize him as the son of God and God the son. We learn this from places like Philippians two, verse eight through 11. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. But for many, this recognition will be too late to have any positive effect on their lives. But at that moment, the chief cornerstone will be revealed to everyone. Oh, we rejected the most important piece, it's Jesus. Now, if Jesus is the cornerstone, with the scriptures being the foundation, the apostles and prophets that Jesus, you know, builds his house upon, then we should be people who build our lives off of him and his word. In other words, Jesus is the most important part of the new people of God. It says in First Peter two, verse four and five, as you come to him as a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus invented a new humanity called the church. And if we said any other person any other philosophy, any other ambition, or any other goal in the cornerstone position, the church will die a slow death from within. We must allow Christ to be the central piece, the one who keeps us in line and true. His gospel is good and we must never waver from its glory. Let's continue to pursue him, to allow him the authority and the preeminence he rightly deserves. So on whom should I build my life? I should build my life upon Jesus. God bless you, church. Have a wonderful week. May God bless you wherever you are and whatever you do this week.